most businesses fail not because they run out of money, but because they never get started in, in the first place. It's typically 10% idea, 90% execution. And that execution is really just the determination to see it through and make it a success no matter what. On this podcast, we share inspirational stories, unique strategies, and the life lessons from entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and innovators in our communities who have transformed their lives and the community around them. Hi, my name is Kevin LePage, and you're listening to Exponentialists On Air. Today on Exponentialists On Air, we have Shane Adams, someone who has truly worked to better the community of Austin through the idea of investment. Investment in companies, investment in the community, and investment in himself. Going from starting a consulting firm with his wife, together to build that to a 275-person firm, to be able to sell that, and then go into startup investing, and just making an impact in the greater Austin community. Shane, thank you for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks, Kevin. All right. So the first question, I'm going to throw you a little low ball, get you going. Um, What is entrepreneurship to you? Uh, To me, entrepreneurship is really betting on yourself and taking your own destiny into your own hands. Uh, And there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into it, but there's also a lot of reward. Uh, So it's definitely a difficult process. And it's one that, frankly, most people embark on at some point in their lives, whether they call it entrepreneurship or not. Personally, I never considered myself an entrepreneur until I had a thriving business and then just retrospectively considered myself one. Mm -hmm. Okay. And to go further on that point, what does social entrepreneurship mean to you? I think social entrepreneurship is not just trying to enrich your own life, but trying to enrich the lives of the community around you. Frankly, that could be with whatever your product or service is. Maybe that provides some sort of social enrichment or it could be as you grow your business, not only do you personally benefit from it, but your employees and the community may benefit from it. Perfect. Okay. Now let's delve into, tell me about any obstacles or challenges that you faced when you were younger that might have inhibited, you know, a path to success. Sure. So I think about this a lot, Kevin. That's why my wife and I started Slay Foundation. Uh, It's something that I believe people are born into different circumstances. I like to talk about life as a game, similar to the game of Monopoly, except there's, there's three big differences between the game of life and the game of monopoly. Number one is in the game of monopoly, everybody starts off with $1,500. If you remember that from, from playing as a kid in the game of life, that's not the case, right? Some, some kids are born into families who are quite wealthy or are doing well, and they might start the game of life off with a lot more money. And then you have some kids who grew up in low income areas and they might not really have a dollar to their name. The second thing is in the game of Monopoly, you roll the dice at the beginning and you get a chance to acquire the property, right? Everybody Mm -hmm. starts owning nothing. In the real world, that's not the case. The properties, the utilities, they're already owned. Um, and, And people that are your peers growing up, some of them already own that through their family and through the network that they have. Um, And the third thing is with Monopoly, you know the rules. In life, 
there's not rules printed, right? Yeah. You're not told what the rules are to the game of life. You might be taught what's right and wrong, what's legal, illegal, but you're not taught all the rules to life. And frankly, if you don't know the rules to life, then how are you expected to succeed at it? And if you're not succeeding at it, how are you expected to be happy? And so that's something that we focus on a lot at Slave Foundation. And me personally, I grew up in a, a working class family. My dad was a bricklayer. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Sometimes she cleaned hotel rooms or washed windows, whatever she could to make money. And so that was something that, you know, I, I wasn't born uh, owning property, owning much money, uh, knowing all the rules, um, and, and certainly not born into that network that would have helped make me better off. Uh, so, you know, those are the things that I, I think are kind of uh, vary from person to person. Mm -hmm. And that kind of branches right into a point that kind of I've I understood as I've as I've grouped up myself is that life, you know, it's not created equal. You know, everyone starts off with, in a different spot. Um, and then uh, life is also made up of the different opportunities that you're given. Um, so as you're growing up, as you're going through uh, high school and things like that, what were some major opportunities that you were given that ended up um, ended up helping you further your success and trying to further yourself into life? Sure. And I, I think I didn't fully answer the last question. I kind of went off on a tangent. <laughs> I think you asked fine. about some of the hardships and now you're asking about some of the opportunities. So to, to take a step back and then to answer this question is uh, I, I think that there's... Um, I, I was, I had the mentality that for me, not having much money growing up, that was something that I aspired to have. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe, uh, my parents, one of the main reasons why they got divorced or would fight the root of many of their fights was about money. Right. And I think a lot of kids can, uh, relate to that. And so that's something growing up. I always said, you know what, if, if I could secure my financial independence, uh, then when I eventually get married, I won't have to fight with my wife about money, right? We could fight about other tedious things. <laughs> right. Um, so that was something that, that was really important to me. And growing up, I also saw my parents, even though we didn't have much and they both were kind of blue collar in the blue collar industry, uh, they both really worked very hard and they always uh, kind of had, had a little bit of entrepreneurship in them. Uh, my mom opened up a daycare at one point. My dad opened up his own construction business. And so for me, the opportunity, uh, I would say, is having them as role models, not just to learn uh, what not to do, aka fight about money and, and so forth, but also about you know, being, I guess, confident enough that maybe I could take on something myself. And so uh, that's what started me down the entrepreneurial path is, is I saw that in my parents and that's eventually what led me to start my own business. Perfect. And you went to university of Missouri, Columbia. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And, and then from there you went and had an opportunity to work at Epic. So, uh, what, what drew you to go to a, you know, healthcare, uh, software company. So growing up, I had been on an airplane about I think once to visit relatives up in New York from St. Louis. Uh, we had a computer in the house that I think we, when I was in eighth or ninth grade, we got for the first time and we shared the computer with dial up and everything. So I was never, uh, I never traveled much. I was never the greatest with computers. 
And at University of Missouri, my degree was in finance and banking. And I thought I would go into the kind of the financial services industry. But I interviewed for every single possible opportunity my senior year. Um, I didn't care what the job was. I actually interviewed to be a store manager at The Buckle, to be a financial analyst at Sprint, to be an advisor for um, like an Edward Jones type of company. Mm -hmm. Ameriprise Financial. And then Epic came along and uh, I didn't really know too much about them, but I applied and they offered to fly me up to Madison, Wisconsin to do a second round interview. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, you know what? I've, I'll have i take a free vacation up to Wisconsin. Uh, what do I have to lose? It'll be fun. Um, I don't know much about computers, but the job says you get to travel 60 to 80% of the time. And I said, sign me up. I'll fly around all day getting paid to do it and getting paid to go out to dinners and things Mm -hmm. like that. So that's what led me up to Epic uh, to get a job. And and they hired me in as a project manager. Uh, What's amazing about Epic is they don't care what your degree's in. Uh, They just want you to have a degree with a solid GPA. And then they decide where they put you uh, based on that, your aptitude and based on how well you score on their tests. So that's kind of how I, I landed at Epic right out of college. And what time of the year did you interview at Epic? Yeah, so we were talking about this a little bit before, Kevin. Uh-huh. It was it was in late December. I actually graduated college in December. Um, so I kind of fast-tracked my, my high school and college just to get out into the real world, make as much money as possible. I had already accepted an interview for Sprint in Kansas City, uh, which was kind of closer to home. And I had actually interned with Sprint before, but uh, the Epic opportunity, it, it was a, a kind of a last minute interview. It was in December, freezing cold up there. I started working. Uh, once I received the offer and accepted it, I started in early February. And on my, I think this was my first day to work. I actually rear-ended another Epic employee driving there. <laughs> um, it was like at two miles per hour because... I hit the brakes and my car just wouldn't stop. It just kept sliding and sliding because the ground was completely covered with ice. And I had yeah. a rear wheel drive car I bought for $1,500 back when I was 16. Yeah. Yeah. So you you worked at Epic and then you went and you founded and tried to create a, well, not tried to, you did create um, a consulting firm, Sagacious Consulting um, Consultants. So Tell me about how you went from working at this company to then developing a consulting firm that kind of worked with companies and worked with Epic Systems at the same time. Sure. And kind of going back on your your prior question about opportunities I've had, um, I know there's a number of opportunity, opportunities that uh, I've had that maybe some other people haven't, um, especially when you think about... Um, you know, certain minority groups and, and people just growing up in different parts of the world, especially. Uh, but but I go back to the kind of that confidence that, that my parents gave me and kind of just the ignorance that I could do something that I didn't, I wasn't qualified to do and I can maybe do it better than somebody who is smarter or more qualified to do it than me. And that, that kind of came into play with starting Sagacious Consultants. I was working at Epic. I, I actually really enjoyed my job, but Um, I had a lot of friends, including my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Lisa, Mm -hmm. uh, who were looking at, at leaving Epic. They weren't happy. Uh, the job was great, but it's, it's like most 
kind of fast growing tech startups in a sense. And at this time they had about 2000 employees. Now they have about 10,000, but you, you have very long hours, sometimes 80 hour work weeks. Um, it's there, there's a lot of customer work where you're working with your healthcare clients and really helping them improve patient care. But there's also a lot of internal projects. There's a lot of internal politics because uh, most of the people they hire are right out of college. So you have a lot of young type A personalities who are trying to move up kind of that corporate ladder very quickly. And so there's a lot of internal politics at play. Um, and then also you're required to live in Madison, Wisconsin. So I had a number of friends who, who had worked there for a couple of years and they were looking at transitioning out. Mm -hmm. And uh, frankly, I, I felt like I was in my 80s and, you know, all my friends were were unfortunately leaving me, you know, mm -hmm. passing away. I felt that as uh -huh. a 22 year old in Madison, because I knew if my friends, especially my girlfriend left Epic, most likely they would move out of Madison. Yep. And so I didn't want to kind of be there by myself. And so I thought of all the ways that Epic could uh, kind of just improve their retention, especially for, mm -hmm. for these targeted people and, and for the greater kind of people in that situation. And I, I took those ideas to kind of my boss's boss and, and I said, hey, I think we have an issue with retention, um, especially losing a lot of really good people. I don't think we want to. Here's some ideas I came up with, and I'm more than happy to spearhead these efforts. You know, I thought, A, it could help retain these people, and B, uh, frankly, it could be self-serving and, and help me progress my career. Yeah. Um, and he just did not, uh, wasn't having any of it. He just wanted to know who the individuals were. Ooh, yeah. um, and I, I thought my personal relationships were more important than uh, kind of just riding them out, yeah. right? And so uh, he wasn't interested. And at that point, I kind of changed my perspective on on Epic. I, I thought, you know what, this isn't going to be a long-term kind of career for me. I, I, I want to look elsewhere. So I started looking at some consulting firms out there because they paid much better doing relatively the same work. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to my dad and he just said, Shane, why don't you just start your own? And, yeah, an and I'm like, well, I, I guess I don't have a good reason not to. It's tough, right. but I'm 22 years old at this point, um, 23 maybe. And I say, yeah, that's that's a great idea. So so I leave and uh, really, I think this is how a lot of businesses are, are started. I had experience I gained from working for the company that's, that's crushing it in this market. They're the electronic health record uh, leader. Um, when it comes to software and I, I learned about what they did really well. And I also learned the things that maybe they didn't do quite so well. So I started a consulting firm, Sagacious Consultants, and I, I really, again, leveraged the things they did well, incorporate that into Sagacious and the things they didn't do well, I either got rid of or I made better. And my wife was integral in that. Um, and, and she really helped me found Sagacious Consultants. And as we grew, I brought on my two brothers actually, and, mm -hmm. and kind of, uh, just grew it exponentially from there. There we go. Exponentially. That's right. Like that, like that. And at Sagacious Consultants, you're doing work that you would go to a client and they're trying to input like the EHR systems from Epic and you kind of act as necessarily, not necessarily the middleman, but able to like better benefit them and like better utilize the technology. Yeah. The best, the best analogy I could give is, um, Imagine 
you want a new software program, you just go to the website now, click the download link and click yeah. next, 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 agree, install, mm-hmm. right? Pretty straightforward. Right. Well, Epic software is used by pretty much everyone within the healthcare system. So take for instance, Baylor, Scott and White, everybody from the nurses to the doctors, to the people in the billing office, uh, to the people cleaning the beds, all log in to Epic. Mm-hmm. And what that means is there's a lot of configurations. There's a lot of customization, uh, state by state. Medicaid is different. Um, doctors treat patients differently. They have different protocols. So there's just, just an infinite number of configuration customization options. And so instead of just clicking download install, these are months and years long implementations. And so we served, um, as kind of like the middleman to help uh, these healthcare systems implement that software in the, the, the best way possible to their organization. Um, so that was one component. And then once you have an electronic platform, uh, that's really just the beginning of it. That allows you to now capture the data, right? And then it's, all right, how can we use this electronic platform and this data now to actually improve patient care, improve the financial stability of our healthcare system to continue to continue offering uh, more value added services to our patients. Obviously I can't do it now, but that sounds like an amazing business idea. And you ended up selling the, the consulting firm to Accenture, Accenture largest consulting firm today um, by number of people. And so um, how did you end up having that opportunity? And then how did that opportunity then lead you down to Austin, Texas? Sure. So like I said before, I I never really considered myself an entrepreneur. And I feel like with a lot of the companies I invest in now or or mentor, I feel like it's a very, uh, they've taken a very MBA startup process, I call it, to starting a business. It's almost like they're following just a playbook. And now, of course, there are MBA programs for entrepreneurship. And it's something that that I didn't have, I didn't know even existed. Uh, So we never raised money. It was a service-based firm. Uh, so it wasn't, I guess, as necessary, but we were very fast growing. So we had to, had to be very cash flow sensitive and, and efficient with our capital. Uh, but, but we grew it like that and we were growing uh, very rapidly. The, and we started in 2009 and it was really just, just myself and then brought on my wife. We were still dating as, as boyfriend and girlfriend at the time and, mm-hmm. and my mentee, her mentee. And then in 2011, uh, I started focusing on kind of business full time. I still wasn't full time until 2011 on it. And then we grew from four people up to, I think, 27 in that year. So that's when we yeah. really hit that exponential curve or that hockey stick uh, curve, if you will. And that's the point when we started actually getting solicited by investment banking firms um, yeah. to see if we were interested in raising money or in getting acquired. And we grew a very profitable business. Uh, so that was never an interest of mine. I, I didn't, again, I was kind of ignorant to the fact that you could start a business and then sell it and then make money off yeah. of it. Yeah I, yeah. I always thought like you start a business to make money yeah. and you didn't like start a business to maybe make money, but to sell it. I didn't know that was yeah. really the exit plan. So just kept growing the business. Um, fast forward to, I think this was 2013 or 2014. And we had a, we actually had signed a letter of intent with a private equity firm mm-hmm. uh, based out of Dallas. We were looking at selling 
about 60% of the business to kind of take some chips off the table, if you will, cash out a little bit and, and get some additional guidance and kind of added contributors to continue to scale the business. Uh, we ultimately turned that down. Uh, what I realized with private equity is um, usually it's a good deal for both parties, but it's a really, really good deal for the PE firm, right? And I just couldn't reconcile that. I, I thought it needed to be fair. Both sides needed to to kind of uh, have equal amount of upsides, but that's just right. the way private equity works. So we ended up walking away from that and really just doubled down on the business. And then that's when in 2015, I received an unsolicited call from somebody from Accenture and just uh, asked me to name a number um, and really caught me off guard. But we ended up going through a very long due diligence process. And I thought uh, they were the best company to acquire us and to continue kind of growing the business and the vision that I, I had from the beginning. That was, that was kind of it. That was in 2015, stayed on board for a couple of years as an advisor. And, and here we are today. Wow. And Sagacious Consultants is still still a subsidiary of Accenture, still functioning? Um, it was for two years, I think. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe like two and a half years. I think in 2018, they finally retired the, the branding and, right. and shut that okay. down. And now it's just Accenture. Okay, perfect. Okay. And that ended up bringing you down to Austin, Texas. Did you work at Accenture in Austin? Is that... Was that sort of how you led you down here? Sure. Actually, I was, I ended up, we ended up moving quite a bit at the start of Sagacious. So we went from Madison down to Marco Island, Florida, uh, over to Richmond, Virginia, and then to Kansas City, Missouri. We were in Kansas City until 2013. And at that point, we actually moved down to Austin. So that was before any of the kind of financing you know, thought came into consideration, but we moved down to Austin for a couple of reasons. One, we were starting to make uh, significant profits with the business and therefore income. And so we wanted to kind of give ourselves a raise, move down to the great state of Texas mm-hmm. uh, where we didn't have to pay state income tax or local income tax like you have in Kansas City, as well as some other municipalities. And also Austin in particular, just because of uh, the kind of startup side. Um, I was starting to get interested in entrepreneurship and startup companies at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, also because of the culture, uh, when it comes to being outdoorsy, being laid back, that was something we really liked. And I thought at, at some point I was kind of warming up to the idea at some point we might sell the company and being in a, again, a tax-free place like, like Texas would be a, a good deal. Right. So you moved down to Austin and at that point, you start getting into the startup area and start looking at investing in different companies. And we were mentioning bringing up opportunities and opportunities in our lives and trying to provide opportunities in others. So how big is your ideal of mentorship and trying to mentor and provide opportunities to different startups that you're investing in um, in Slay? Is that correct? Correct. correct. Yes. Okay. Uh, in Slave Ventures and then trying to mentor um, students and try to help them have opportunities provided for them through Slave Foundation. Sure. So I think that, I mean, for me growing up, I, I wanted to be a few things in life. At, at first, it was being an attorney, a lawyer. I always thought it would be fun to argue with people. Um, and then I realized it was actually a lot of 
kind of sitting in an office by yourself, reading really thick books yeah. and, and writing uh, long kind of essays, if you will. So I decided I didn't want to do that. I really liked the idea of being a teacher, uh, but mm-hmm. frankly, it just wasn't going to get me to my goal of financial independence. And so uh, ultimately, you know, took the path I did, but so, you know, come full circle now, you know, in 2013, when I was, you know, starting to make some, some good money and growing sagacious and, and gain some valuable kind of learnings along the way, I thought, you know, what, now I could kind of be that teacher I wanted to be. And I did that through slave ventures, investing in, in startups, mentoring them. And now a heavy focus is with slave foundation where we're focused on working with high school students from low income areas. Um, and I think what's, what I've realized is especially talking to these high school students, cause we go in a lot of high schools is if, if you're a student and you're a kid, let's say, and you have your parents, your teachers, just random adults telling you, do your homework, go to school, get good grades, go to college. Right. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's quite inefficient if you will. And just a lot of wasted effort. You know, if, if I'm a kid and, and I love LeBron James and I see that he's crushing in life, making millions of dollars, he's a celebrity, everybody knows him, mm-hmm. I'm going to go outside and practice basketball every day, right? Growing up in the community I did or the community that a lot of kids here in Austin who we helped grow up in, their neighbors and their family and their family friends, uh, they don't work in any of those downtown corporate buildings we see, right? Like growing up, I didn't know what anybody did in a downtown office building. I didn't know what it would be like to work there. I didn't know how much money they made. And so what I think is important is really showing people what opportunities exist yeah. and, and doing that through the power of storytelling. Because um, that, I think if you can inspire somebody to do something, then they're going to go and put in that effort on their own volition. And I think that's a much more efficient and effective way to get through to people. And so I think that's my goal when it comes to the foundation is just showing those opportunities and inspiring people to pursue them. And then when it comes to mentoring startups, um, I think a lot of it is inspiring them. Um, Oftentimes it's not the smartest or the best idea that works. Mm -hmm. It's really about execution. I like to say uh, most businesses fail not because they run out of money, but because they never get started in, in the first place. Um, and then when you do have a successful business, it's typically 10% idea, 90% execution. And that execution is really just the determination uh, to see it through and make it a success no matter what. And so when I talk to these kind of startup founders and things like that, a lot of it is helping them kind of see obstacles and setbacks as just opportunities to learn and continue to to kind of better themselves in their business. Um, and also just, I think a network is super important. Um, yeah. That's one of the most valuable things I could add to the companies I mentor or invest in is connecting them to, to other companies I might be invested in or connecting them to people I know who's in you know a market that they want to get exposed to. I think that's oftentimes the, the most valuable thing kind of a, an angel investor could do in that situation. And you mentioned you were talking about Slate Foundation a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and you're talking about how you you know you teach best and you inspire best through storytelling. And so, what are some um, other specific concepts or some specific stories that you might tell to these students, just as you're going through Slate Foundation and your partnerships with these schools? 
Sure. So one of the things I like to talk about is at Sagacious Consultants, when Accenture acquired us, we had about 275 employees. Mm-hmm. And this number might not be exact, but it's pretty darn close, is about 273 of them had college degrees, right? Uh, 99% of people had college degrees. And for us, you know, we were a great company to work for. Every year we took an international trip with the entire company, uh, paid really well, had great benefits. And so there were a lot of people who applied to work for us, just like with, with most companies now, there's a ton of great people. Um, I just looked at LinkedIn recently at a Facebook post for a marketing position and it showed there were like 195 people who applied, right? Like 30 years ago, people applying to a job might be people in that neighborhood, right? In that city. Now it's people in the entire city, state, country, worldwide applying to a job. So if you think you're going to be the number one best marketing candidate, and you're going to get that job, first off, you're probably not going to be the top person. And even if you are, that's not who's getting the job, right? It's somebody who meets the minimum qualifications, who's probably networked to somebody at Facebook, who's who will probably get that job. And so what one of my messages to, to kids growing up now is having a college degree, um, it might not teach you everything, but it might get your foot in the door. Because when we were getting resumes, uh, we would, we wouldn't have time to review them all. Right. So we had to start categorizing them. How could we filter them down so that we're not wasting so much time interviewing people? Mm-hmm. So the first step we would do is we would create two piles, one college degree, one, no college degree. And every resume in the no college degree pile would just get thrown out. Okay. It's a harsh reality, but that's the way it works. So in life, I think oftentimes it's, it's not luck. Of course, there's luck is always an element, but it's about being prepared when an opportunity comes. And, and I think getting a college degree does just that. And you mentioned earlier, um, a lot earlier about um, life being like Monopoly or, you know, the game of life. And if we if we think of life as a game and we talk about like the rules of it, um, I think what, what you might be getting at is that you're just giving you're giving these students the opportunity to see some more, I guess, some shortcuts around rules, some way you're just giving them a little glimpse of like the specific rules of life. You know, ideally, perfectly, this is how it should run. You work the hardest and you should be able to get that job. But as you mentioned, you might not be able to due to people networking. And so um, maybe a little bit of what you try to focus on is trying to just show the, you know, these are the strict rules, but then there's some, you know, go arounds that, you know, the rules in life are just not as, as cut and dry. Yeah, I think the one of the things I, I like to talk about is, you know, we have what, 7 million people in the world and you're not going to be the best, you know, marketing person. You're not going to be the best engineer. You're not going to be the best basketball player, right? There's only going to be one person and, you know, the odds are it's, it's not going to be you. Um, Inspiring. So, so what, what do you have that's, <laughs> that's unique? Yes. Uh, what you have that's unique is your unique perspective. Your right. the collective experience of your life is what's unique. And oftentimes it's again, it's not the smartest person, it's not the wealthiest person, it's not the best looking person. It's a person who sees something and with their unique perspective, they view it a little bit differently and they're able to exploit that difference. 
right? And exploit mm-hmm. it for, for the benefit of themselves and, and hopefully for the community as well. Um, and so I think, I think that's what's really key is, you know, when you're going through life, uh, don't look at kind of, you know, the family dynamic you're born into, your parents might be divorced, maybe you never met your dad, don't look at the, the color of your skin, how much money you have, uh, what you need to focus on are how are those things really preparing you to succeed in life? Because we're all living our own story. And every good story has, you know, ups and downs, right? Every good story has a protagonist and antagonist. And your goal is to, to continue living that story to get to see the end, that successful ending. And when talking about entrepreneurship's role in, um, in the game of life and the rules, and uh, let's focus on Austin specifically for right now. How do you see entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship um, being able to promote community growth in the Austin community? Because it's very because Austin's Austin's a great city, has a lot of growth and a lot of you know the technology boom and the startups. But there's also a disparity um, between different parts of Austin. So how do you feel that entrepreneurship could end up impacting that? So right now in Austin, I do see a number of organizations getting started that are they consider themselves b corps um you know where they are socially good is is part of kind of uh i guess their their principles or their mission you know most companies have to treat their customers employees and stockholders well uh, b corps add in kind of the social aspect mm-hmm. of it so i think that's a very positive development. I think just like involving more women and more minorities in kind of startup teams or in, uh, you know, being part of the VC industry. Um, I think it's just like doing social good. I think it's just good for business, right? You know, when you think about trying to improve the community, I think if you have a mission that is improving the community that coincides with what you're trying to do with your business, uh, that's just going to to be positive for for your company's outlook and obviously the community. I mean, just look at Tom's, right, and what they've right. been able to accomplish, and there's a number of companies like that. Um, so I really like seeing that, and I see a lot of the entrepreneurs who have done well in the community opening up their own foundations or nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously that's something we're doing, and there's a number of other ones out there. All right. So that's all that I have time for today. Well, one more question. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Yes or no? No. Just like golf is not a sport. Oof. Okay. Play a little golf on the side. All right. I'll take that. Shane, thank you very much for coming out and I appreciate having the time to talk to you. Yep. Thanks, Kevin. Since interviewing Shane, Slave Foundation has continued spreading its impact through an expansion of its speaker series to San Antonio and through a podcast. Now, You might be asking, you're advertising a rival podcast? (laughs) Some businessman he is. Now, if you remember, taking it back to Roman Gonzalez's episode, if we both are aiming to help other people and build communities, then we just cannot be in competition. So, listen to Exponentialist on air, listen to the power of storytelling with Shane Adams, and continue to support both organizations and thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to wherever... You listen to your podcasts, and I will see y'all for season two. Thank you very much.